is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello and welcome again to the Enter Sad Men podcast. The best podcast around in terms of reviewing and rating and ranking the best hard rock, heavy metal albums that you should own, you should listen to. Why? Why are we the best? Because we're the only ones out there that look at these things track by track and review and rate and rank them down to their finest details. Because we are preparing the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. The best way to find out what we do is to visit us, please, on entersadmen.co.uk. But you can also find us on the various social media. And this podcast is available pretty much everywhere. We are on this episode at number 57. And uh, the theme of this episode is all about the universe. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, there's three of us. I'm Richard and I'm joined by Mark and Steve. And we had another challenge this week, gentlemen. Uh, Steve, uh, how easy was it for you to select your album for this episode? I, I made sure it wasn't difficult by just choosing an album straight away. So I didn't actually give it any thought whatsoever, um, especially when Mark said he was struggling. So space is a big thing, isn't it? it, it sh we should have had lots of things to choose from. But I just said, sod it. On Deep Purple's Fireball, the cover, they look like they're coming out of space on a fireball. So... And that's good enough for me. We do tenuous, don't we? More tenuous <laughs> than that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very interesting the way you two have chosen to interpret <laughs> universe. Because I think we've all made the mistake of thinking that we chose space as a theme. It's not. It's the universe. It could be anything in the universe. But no, I got righteously fucking roasted, didn't I, for picking for picking a spaceship. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Honestly, when I when I because so we add all of these themes to a list just for those of you who are wondering what the hell's going on. And when I put universe on that list, I was thinking, there we go, that's easy. We could do anything. That's almost the equivalent of play what you want. But no, we yeah. went down the space route. So um I really did struggle actually. Uh I came up with oh god, a number of different options i didn't actually like any of them when i listened to them and eventually i thought oh, bollocks to it i'll do ufo and um and then then richard came out with some fighting talk about the fact that his choice was a space rock band and i was thinking that's not a proper space rock band we need to have a proper space rock band so then i changed my mind and i went for hawkwind <laughs> so that's that's what i did hall of the mountain grill yeah because um because uh, restaurants are in space in the universe aren't they yeah there's one at the end. It had a rocket on the cover. <laughs> yes, and as, as Mark said, I, um, uh, I I went for spacer-ish rock. Um, so we have got a bit of a spacer rock battle going on tonight. Uh, but my choice was slightly newer. Uh, I went for, an, well, actually, we, we've not had Hawkwind yet, have we? It's first first no. appearance for Hawkwind on the, on the podcast. And it's also the first appearance of Monster Magnet uh, and their third album uh, released just before our cutoff in uh, 1995, Dopes to Infinity. So will this podcast go to infinity and beyond or will we crash on takeoff? Uh, let's find out. Uh, before we start with Deep Purple's Fireball, 
uh, let's have a little listen to some of the gems we've been listening to in preparation for this episode. you enjoyed those few snippets um and uh, we'd better disappear down our first wormhole uh, and uh, that wormhole is in 1971 i believe 1970 steve uh, and it's a uh, deep purple deep purple and Bible. opening album sleeve notes this is yeah not much of an intro needed for this thing i don't think uh fireball deep purple's fifth studio album when it was released in 71 um, and it was set for big things because it came hot on the heels of In Rock, which the Purple Boys seemed to, at the time, unanimously agree was their best album thus far, superseded later by Machine Head. In contrast, from what I've read, um, they didn't rate Fireball much at all. Um, and we'll come on to that in a bit. But commercially, ever so successful. Um, because it was the first of three straight number ones for them. The lineup was that kind of golden quintet. I think they call it Purple Mark II, don't they? Um, which is Gillen, Blackmore, Glover, Pace and Lord. I bought it retrospectively, of course, since I was only six years old in 1971. I bought it in about 1980 um, when I was kind of a bit, bit of an apprentice headbanger at that stage. And I, I heard Anyone's Daughter, which, as anyone will know from the album, is about the least headbangy song on there. Um, and I thought it was genius. And instantly, despite not having great metal connections at that stage i instantly kind of got went down the gillen route and went to see gillen a couple of years later anyway that's by the by this is fireball so a few facts about this thing um released on september the 1st 1971 having already been released in the us um with a slightly different makeup we'll talk about that in a minute um recorded late 70 early 71 on the harvest label um 40 minutes 30 seconds long the band produced it at Delane Lay Studios in London and Olympic Studios in London, which I think something else was recorded at that we'll be doing later. I think Hawkwind were there, weren't they, at uh, Olympic Studios? 
previous album, as I say, was in rock. The next album was Machine Head. Um, and the personnel, as I say, was Gillen on vocals, Richard Blackman on guitars, Roger Glover on bass, John Lord on keyboards and organ, and Ian Pace on drums and percussion. Got to number one in the UK, number 32, did in the US. Didn't quite launch them there as they thought it would, but the next album certainly did. Sold over a million and seven tracks long. We have been listening to and are about to review the uh, European version of Fireball, um, which contained Demon's Eye as track three, rather than the US version, which had Strange Kind of Woman on as that track three. question rhetorically what's wrong with fireball if the band didn't quite like it so much if indeed there is anything wrong with it in brief and again this is just this is 1971 i've got a clue it looks like some of the reasons they were working themselves into the ground touring by mid 71 few of them had health problems there were clashes between blackmore and gillen um, over artistic designs blackmore had decreed that the success of in rock was because he'd been allowed to give it a hard rock reign um, and gillen as anyone who's listened to the Ian Gillan Band, which was the band he formed immediately after he left um, Purple, they weren't heavy. They, he went down a crazy route. So th- there was clearly tension between you know the two mainstays of the band. There's this very re- revealing quote from Ian Pace I saw when he was talking about moving from In Rock to Fireball. It seems to sum it all up. He said, um, and I quote, the hardest thing about it in rock was following it up. We were working so much due to the success that when we tried to do the next album, Fireball, we realised we had no ideas whatsoever. Fireball turned out to be a bit of a let's hope we've got an album's worth here type of thing, um, which I think is really interesting given this is, you know, basically a super group, you know, and, and they were kind of dry. Um, so to answer my own question, what's wrong with Fireball? And without deferring to anyone else, no historical reviews, I just think it's just a bit above average as a whole, if I'm honest, because there's nothing really wrong with it. There's just very little that's excellent on it. And from a band who knew how to do excellent, I'm, I'm left quite cold by it. The musicality, without any question, is there. Musically, it's fantastic because they are, they are such gifted musicians. And there's two or three tracks on there that are outstanding. But I just don't think two or three of the songs are that strong. Um, so I'll ask you two the same question that I asked myself. Do you think the ideas well had runs right here? What do you think, Mark? Um, no, I don't think it is. 
I don't think it is. I really like it as an album. I think there are two or three absolutely stunning tracks on it, but I think it suffers. It's almost like that difficult. I know it's not their second album. It's a long way from their second album, but it feels mm. like a second album, doesn't it? It feels like all of the momentum has yeah. gone into in rock and I think the success of that almost took them by surprise. And then suddenly the record company is going, we're going to make hay while the sun shines. Off you go. There's America. There's Europe. There's the Far East. Tour, 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 tour. And on, by the way, we want you back in the studio in May to record another album. Um, Yeah, there there are a couple on there that I don't much care for. There are a couple on there that I would race up among Mm -hmm. Purple's best. Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. Richard? Yeah, had the well run dry. Um, they certainly ran out of ideas, I think. And I, what's the word? I, I guess cohesive. As an album, this doesn't fit together. Mm. It's a bit all over the place. Yeah, I'm with Mark. That there's a there's a couple of tracks that are absolutely stunning, and there's now no doubting the musicianship uh, throughout and and the way they play together as a band. Uh, but there are, yeah, there are some missteps and stuff on here. I'm surprising that they put on an album, if I'm honest. So an interview with, with John Lord and, and he, whether he was just sort of, I don't know, you know, justifying it in retrospect, uh, I don't know. But but he was saying that he didn't he didn't slag it off, uh, Fireball, but he he didn't praise it to the heavens. Okay, so as I say, seven tracks, um, four on side one, three on side two, and I don't think there's any dispute that um, the title track, the opening track, is one of the better ones on, on this album, and that there's no two ways about it. it um, it's the second single off the album, peaked at number 15 in the UK charts, and it's a proper rocker. kicks off with the sound of an air conditioner, apparently, into Ian Pace on the drums, um, and then everything else kicks in, pretty fast pace. Nothing faster than Roger Glover's bass playing, driving this all along. And he also, interestingly, there's some great things about this track. He gets to play the album's first solo. I mean, it could only be 1971, couldn't it? Well, the, the first bloke you invite to do the solo is the bass player. And the second bloke is the organ player, Mr. John Lord. And Richie Blackmore doesn't play a solo on Fireball at all, which is just <laughs> bizarre. And the other thing, of course, which will be a massive interest and bring a beaming smile to, um, to Richard's face is the... Um, is Ian Pace and the double bass drum. <laughs> so how would that have been in 1971? Surely that was so ahead of his time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not just the double bass drum, the speed of this guy. I mean, it, I was thinking, it, is this the original speed metal track? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I can't recall anything that went before this that was just yeah. so fast. Groundbreaking, yeah. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he ever did it again. I don't. He didn't like doing it. He said because he he, he, gave, he gives it a lovely Ponzi drummer quote that I read. Sometimes with the bass drums, it's not where you put the note. He said it's where you don't put the note, and that makes it work. <laughs> <laughs> so is this is this sl- faster then than Speed King? Would be, wouldn't it? I mean, the thing I love about it is it's it's just relentless. And um, yeah, a brilliant, it is. brilliant song. It's a great song. It's a great song. When you think of all the heavy stuff that was happening at the time, and this is heavy, you know, this is so, so different from, say, Black Sabbath or even Zeppelin were doing, you know, it stood them apart. And it is a great song, and it's a great way to start the album. And unfortunately, it doesn't last. 
in my humble opinion, because we go into no, no, no. And they, they should have just said just at the start of that, because just no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just getting weapons grade <laughs> in the White House now. Winehouse. Oh, fucking hell. Seriously, it's just, it's like, where's, the, where's, where's Deep Purple gone? Track two, yeah. please. I mean, anyone doesn't know it. It's just, it's just, it starts off like some sort of funky hoedown. The funk never quite leaves it, and that's fine. But fucking hell, yeah, it's um, it's just dull. For one, it's going to be Rich's <laughs> favourite track on the album. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I don't think it's that bad, actually. I think it's a weird order straight after yeah. the opener but i like the funk i like the groove this has grown on me again listening through through it again um i think the riff's really catchy one of the big problems in it though is the, the sort of that that sort of drop into that jam section in the middle well run dry i think here's yeah. an example of Oh crap! We don't know what what we want to do. Tell you what, let's just kind of go into a jazzy, funky jam for a couple of minutes. You know, I think the the start and the the main riff, yeah. I, I really really like. But it's not the only song that just disintegrates no, into not. a jam either, no. is it? It's <laughs> and you know, there's there's a, a stone cold, deep purple favorite you know, fans' favourite on this album that is also exactly. not a lot more than a jam, which I don't actually much like and have never much liked. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we, we, this is evidence that this is a band making it up as they go along. They do retrieve it, I think, with um, Demon's Eye, which is, as I say, we're reviewing um, rather than Strange Kind of Woman. The whole story is just bizarre because Strange Kind of Woman was released as a single in February 1971. So a few months before Fireball came out, but wasn't included on the UK. I don't, I simply do not get why not. All I can deduce is that Strange Kind of Woman had already been recorded, so wasn't part of the Fireball recording cycle. You just think, you know, so what, just stick it on the album, there's room on the album. But we get Demon's Eye, and it's got that kind of Black Knight lumbering tempo. It's very cool. It's very catchy elevated inevitably by a trademark John Lord organ solo and then almost as inevitably re-elevated by a Richie Blackmore solo who will not be upstaged. So it's brilliant. <laughs> the, the conversation between organ and, and, and guitar throughout this album, throughout Deep Purple's reign, is what almost stands them apart. Yeah, this is as cool as Brad Pitt in a cool <laughs> convention with a lot of other cool people. It's it's really, really hypnotic and, and heavy. It's a really heavy song. Yeah. And I love this song. I think this is one of the top songs on the album. They knew what they were doing with this one. It'd be fascinating to know how many of these they had written already and there must have been writing as they were touring, you would have thought. This is a funny one for me because... It's no doubt. It's a good song. I've always felt this to be when you compare it with you know, other purple songs off other albums to be kind of okay. average purple. Doesn't okay. stir me. Well, if that doesn't, the next one probably won't mm. either. Which is anyone's daughter, although on a completely different level. I mean, it's hard not to like. It's very whimsical. This is this is a song that really divides opinions amongst all purple. Well, a lot of people, I would have thought. Some of the band didn't like it. Ian Gillan liked it, but didn't think it should have been on the album. I'm fairly sanguine about any of that. So this is anyone's daughter. As I say, it's folky, it's gentle, it's very well written, incredibly well written. 
Um, apparently, Blackmore just fiddling around in some downtime. The next thing you know, he's written a song. The lyrics are a delight. So it's very funny. Is it an imposter on the album? <sighs> Maybe, but oh, I'm not sure there's a lot to dislike about it. And anyway, Gillan certainly wasn't a stranger to co-writing fun songs. We saw plenty of that throughout his career. I have no truck with anyone's daughter. It's, it's odd, and I like mm-hmm. it. I'm with Gillan. I like the humour, a wry smile, listening to the story. But it's a weird addition, and I, I don't <laughs> think it belongs here on the album. No. I really, I really like this. <laughs> I like this because I think it shows Gillan's sense of humour. I, I completely understand as well, which is what you're saying. And, yeah, I think you can argue that it's probably it's not a Deep Purple song. If it had turned up on a Gillen album, you'd probably yeah. thought it was a bit more yeah. kind of suited to that, wouldn't you? But it's fun. It's fun. It made me laugh. I thought it was an interesting yeah. way to finish Side 1. Yeah, no, it is that. So Side 2, which is obviously only got three tracks on, um, kicks off with... The Mule, so this starts off with this sort of hissing tambourine sound and then into a song that just rolls and rolls and rolls, courtesy of a pace set by um, Ian Pace on the drums. And Purple aficionados will, of course, know that this is the song which used to house Pace's very long drum solo back in the day. And if you're mad enough to want to know what that sounds like, go listen to Made in Japan, which was Purple's 72 live release, which features this and all its drumming glory. As a track, it's okay. It's effectively an instrumental, if you take out a handful of Gillen lyrics. It's fine. For a drummer, yeah, there's no doubt his prowess on this. But this, again, fits into the filler category for me. You know, it's jazzy, it's jammy, very psychedelic. I'd love to know where the ideas, say, came from for this album and whether this had been Mm. sticking around since, Mm. you know, when they began. I don't like this. I've never liked it much, to be honest. I don't like the version on Made in Japan either, and I love that album. I think that's a great live album and one that we shall subject you to, Steve, um, in due course, I'm sure. I- I'm with Richard. It's just, it's, for me, it's just a bit of a, a mess. It- it's not classic mm. Deep Purple. I actually like the next track less, which is Fools. There's a nice blend of sort of chilled atmosphere um, and hard rock up to a point. You've got this very patient opening, the sort of tap of the cymbals and this sort of forlorn guitar and organ line. And then it erupts. Well, I, I, I say erupts. I mean, it's not Metallica. It, it kind of it lifts up a notch. And it kind of sets the tone, except there's a midsection in this where oh, it's just yawnful, where Blackmore makes his guitar sound like a cello. And it's one of the worst things I think I've ever heard in my life. It's really plaintive or painful, depending on how you're feeling. And I err towards painful. It's a bit tuneless and very dull. They do, thankfully, they kick it up to the finish, but I'm, I've lost interest by that stage. And it's far too long. It's far too. It doesn't need to be eight minutes long. They could cut this by seven and a half minutes. We'll, we'll come on to cutting songs by significant <laughs> amounts when we talk about Monster Magnet. Um, but for me, I, I love this. Oh, this is my favourite track on the album. Fuck you. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, despair. I fucking despair. I hate it when I disappoint you so badly. Um, <laughs> I, I just think it rocks. I'm, and I'm quite happy because that's what I want Pete, Deep Purple to do. I want them to rock. Yeah, you know, it's not as good as some other hard rock songs that they came up with you know, after this and before it. But I don't think there's anything wrong with this. And I think I'm in the middle. Because there, 
I'm half and half with this. I, I think the main riff, the main riff is brilliant. The bass and the organ working together. It, it's it's fantastic. There's a really good lift in the bridge and the chorus. I quite like the start. But as Steve says, around the four-minute mark, it just goes into this bizarre middle. Then the main riff comes back again, and then they lose it again towards the end. Um, and, and, yeah, it is too long. Thankfully, talk about saving the best till last, despite what Mark will tell you, no one came. We've got an absolutely brilliant slab of funk rock to finish off. Gillen is absolute best. Anyone else getting no laughing in heaven, by the way, with this performance? Absolutely, yeah. He's almost (laughs) rapping his song section. It's so good. Um, The midsection, we get a proper Blackmore solo after the shit that went before in Fools. Um, Embellished again, as you said, by that back line, that back back line with Glover at the core of it. It's just superb. Um, And when Blackmore shows off, it follows the Lord has to show off or vice versa, and that's the running order this time. Um, and so the piano man's next with his solo. The song's groovy. The finish is to die for. This is six minutes, 28 seconds of pure jamming, funk, rock, joy. And it could be twice as long. By Country Mile, the best mm-hmm. thing on this album. And you're right, Steve, actually, it is. It, I know I said that the last one was, but I've not looked at the score I've given this. You're right, it is the best track on the album. And, and for all of the reasons you've said. Yeah, this, this, is, this is properly written. This is probably written, properly arranged. There's tons of energy. There's some intel- real intelligence here. As you say, the ending's great. I love the little yeah. false finish before it then goes again. There's just re- really, really nice touches in this song. So there you go, Fireball. Only seven tracks to talk about. So let's discuss our highs and our lows. Mark? Uh, no One Came is the is the high. And No, 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 just No, No, No. <laughs> Richard? My low is anyone's daughter, and the high is the title track, All Day. Just a brilliant, brilliant piece of fast okay. rock. Yeah, so it's the last two tracks on the album for me. Fools is the low, and No One Came is the high. And there we have album number one in this episode, Done and Dusted. That is Deep Purple's Fireball. We move on three years. We travel far, far further out into space. Um, for Hawkwind and Hall of the Mountain Grill, Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, Hawkwind, um, the first and true king of the space rock bands that we are talking about this evening uh, on this show. Um, This is a band formed in 1969 in London. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a weirder band that has been as commercially successful as Hawkwind. They are truly weapons-grade weird. This, of course, is the band that launched Lemmy, who had been a roadie up until the point where he happened to meet Dick Mick, who'd been brought back by uh, some somebody from a pub. <laughs> so they meet up, and Dick Mick invites him to join Hawkwind. Did you know that Lemmy had never played a bass before in his life when he joined Hawkwind. Um, somebody said, who's playing bass in this band? And Dick Mick went, <laughs> he is, and pointed at Lemmy. And Lemmy's like, what the fuck? I've never played a bass in my life. And yeah, so he learned to play the bass, having already joined the band. See, this is Hawkwind. No one knew what anybody was doing. In the same way that Del Detmar had never played synth at all in his life and he was brought into the band and 
told that he was going to play synthesizer. So if you want a an insight into the ability, philosophy, mindset, drug-addled mindset of Hawkwind around 1974, um, then Lemmy gives it in fairly decent measure. He says... We had no fucking interest in understanding synthesizers whatsoever. Del Detmar hadn't played a synth in his life. He just spent the time on stage reading the manual and learning as he played. Now, I suspect there's a bit of Lemmy embellishment in that. Yeah, this is a very, very weird band. It's interesting, I think, that they are associated with flower power and the sort of the late 60s kind of hippie movement and you know if you believe a lot of what people say about Hawkwind you'd think they grew up wearing sort of afghans and heavy coats and you know what have you and wearing flowers in their hair they did the drugs that everyone was doing in the late 60s but actually they were a progressive rock band they were doing stuff that nobody was doing at that time uh, you know and, and certainly you know the first three or four albums were I hate using this word, but they were. They were absolutely groundbreaking. Whether you like them or not is an entirely different matter. So, yeah, this is Hawkwind, closely associated as Blue Oyster Cult are with the author Michael Moorcock, who is credited as a member of the band. Uh, the band has had 53 members throughout its uh, its many incarnations. So, you know, that it's like a revolving door. You know, they were sacking people, hiring people. Stacia, who was a bookbinder by profession, apparently, this gigantic Amazonian six-foot-two, 52-inch busted woman, um, turns up at a gig, gets on stage and does an interpretative dance during a concert in 1972 and is invited to join the band. That's how Hawkwind works. Um, crazy, crazy times. And, yeah, so, you know, let's let's talk about the album, Hall of the Mountain Grill, released on September the 6th, 1974, and re- recorded uh, between May and June of that year, um, well, at least the studio tracks were. The live performances were captured on January the 24th, 1974 at the Edmonton Sundown. Um, it was released on Liberty in Japan, United Artists Everywhere Else, and it clocks in at 41.24. It was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, and which I think is interesting. We'll come. I'm sure we'll come on to this because Roy Thomas Baker was Queen's producer forever and a day. And had built a reputation with Queen, bearing in mind that you know Queen had already released their debut, their debut album a, a year before this, and you know the, the next one would be not long after this one. Roy, Roy Thomas Baker, I think, was known as a producer for creating really crisp, you know, very clear sounds, and he certainly did with Queen. And this is anything but, but the production on this is really sludgy. I'm sure we'll talk about it. The previous album to this was Space Ritual in 1973, uh, which I think was broadly a live album. And the next one was Warrior on the Edge of Time, which was better produced. Uh, Personnel for this, well, pick from any number of 100 people, but uh, the core seems to be Dave Brock on lead guitar, 12-string guitar, synthesizer, organ, harmonica and vocals, Nick Turner on saxophone, oboe, flutes and vocals, Lemmy on bass, vocals and guitars, Simon King on drums and percussion, Del Detmar on keyboards, keyboard manual, synthesizer and kalimba. Um, And uh, a special or notable mention for Simon 
for Simon House, who joins on synthesizer, Mellotron and violin, because this is a very different style, this album, to the one that had gone before, the two that had gone before, and Simon House is generally credited with driving that change of direction. This album peaked in the UK chart at 16, spent five weeks there, highest chart position in the United States, 110. But I think this is a you know very creditable, heavy piece of progressive rock, um, space rock, if you want. And if you talk to people who followed Hawkwind at the time, particularly their manager, Doug Smith, who, of course, went on to manage Motorhead, he says that essentially their, their space rock tag was created by that audio generator remodulator that they were using because that was what created the atmosphere in the gigs. What did you think? This is the um, this is the only Porkwind album I've ever heard in full. I've heard some of their singles, a couple of their singles, obviously, but this is the first time I've really been exposed to them for any length of time. <laughs> I've described it as psychedelic symphonic prog rock. Um, Roy Thomas Baker, I think I'm right in saying, was the man who took Too Fast for Love from Leather to Electra, so remixed that, took the sludge out of that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I saw somewhere someone write that Hawkwind were not just one hit wonders, but one chord wonders, um, which is a which is a cheap and nice line, but not from where I'm lying. I, I think this is just brilliant. This is just so much fun. There must have been so many drugs taken recording this. I mean, maybe forget psychedelic symphonic prog rock. It's interplanetary rock because these boys were just on different planets. Away with the fairies. 
Simon House, you're right, absolutely star of the show. I, again, I've not heard the stuff before, but I've, I've read everything that you must have read about, and you've obviously heard because you're far more of a Hawkwind, you know, aficionado than I am. But added a completely different dimension to the band, transformative, I guess, um, in terms of the, the whole sound. He is the star of the show. You've got to judge this album on the times it was released, and that's early 1970s, and just appreciate, just appreciate the imagery, the coolness, the rock. I mean, definitely it rocks, but mainly the weirdness. I mean, that's what I appreciate more than anything else, the fucking weirdness. It's so immersed in psychedelia, it's, it's just never dull. Majoring on those prolonged mid and end sections, so beloved, incidentally, of another space rock outfit, we may well be discussing a little bit later, a band from a very different space-time continuum, but surely inspired by this mob. In short, I love Side 1. I lose interest pretty early on in Side 2, but overall, thoroughly enjoyable. Richard? Yeah, thoroughly enjoyable. Good choice. Good, good choice. I think a lot of this is well-written. I mean, it's very cleverly arranged, I mean, there's a lot going on here, and it's multi-layered. I know what you mean about the production. It's not exactly crisp, is it? But further to the comment I made earlier about Deep Purple, this album has sort of washed around me and immersed me, but in a very pleasing way. And yeah, it's been a it's been a really enjoyable listen. Well, you know, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting band. And an interesting listen when the thing that caused the most conflict within the band was what brand of drugs they were taking. Because apparently the rest of the band really objected to the fact that Lemmy was a speed freak. Um, And they they were all into acid and LSD and what have you. And he was into his speed. And that was the biggest bone of contention in Hawkwind at this point was, was what your drug of choice happened to be. So, yeah. Well, let me say, doesn't he? The reason he got thrown out of Hawkwind was for drugs, not the fact that he was taking them, but he was taking the wrong kind. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, and then got and then got caught with them at the Canadian border. I think um, I think Destiny's Child went through so, something uh, similar, as I recall. But <laughs> uh, yeah, um, okay. The album opens with the psychedelic Warlords, which I really. I mean, this is a heavy heavy piece of space rock with uh, a great chorus, really hooky chorus. Um, I think that the thing that I would say at the outset is Hawkwind are the masters of self-plagiarism because they recycle an enormous amount of stuff on this album. You hear you know, um, instrumental phrasing that will pop up on one track and then it, suddenly you hear it again in another one down. You know, So they, they borrowed heavily from their own stuff – on this album, which makes it an interesting listen, I think. Um, Psychedelic Warlords pretty much seems a Hawkwind classic, I think. Um, rhythmic guitar, strumming, simple. There's a kind of a complex bit of complex build going on. Um, yeah, a bit of a bridge, beautiful Mellotron chorus, not too much Mellotron, not over Mellotron. This track uh, kind of makes me think a bit about uh, maybe, obviously, mm. given the Moorcock link, Bloister Cult. I could hear Bloister Cult doing something like this. Mark, it's so interesting what you said about sort of self-plagiarism, which is why I get fed up with the back end of this album. It's because I've heard the tracks before and not on previous albums, you know, a few minutes earlier. Yes. And, and that's what kind of wears towards the end. At this stage, 
I'm happy in my hammock, which is where you need to be. And as I say, it's so interesting listening to this album on the same night as we were reviewing, you know, Dokes to Infinity, because released two decades later, let's not forget. But you can absolutely see how Dave Windorf was um, inspired by music like this. Christ, just listening to the way they drop out of the choruses, it's Windorf. You know, it's brilliant. It's proper out there. Weird as shit finish as well. It's perfect. I love the fact I just saw, I saw this thing about Dave Brock because it's this is his weird headspace, presumably. Um, I love the fact that before forming Hawkwind, he was a professional busker, like like buskers were professional. He'd just somebody who was so away with the fairies and just fed up. He just said to life, "Fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm just going to go and sit on a corner and call myself a professional busker." This is perfect. I love this song. Just that perfect combo of rock and psychedelia. Simple chord structures, any amount of distortion. Echo effect, atmospherics, experimentation, the whole works. It's priceless. Yeah, agree, agree. It's a brilliant start. I love, uh, I really like the way it charges along. I mean, here, there's a br- that break in the middle. We talk about purple and that the, there's not really working. But in, in this context, uh, how it just sort of slows down uh, and then it builds and builds and builds back up. Loads going on. Yeah, brilliant. The harmonies, yeah, I get the. I get the Bloister cult. I mean, it's that sort of dual vocal. It's almost a bit Pink Floydy as well, isn't it? So um, Psychedelic Warlords uh, ultimately gives way reluctantly to Wind of Change, which is it's, it's really it's a, an instrumental. Um, it's, well, it's not even an instrument. It's a jam, really. The Mellotron features very heavily in Hawkwind's catalogue and there's there's a lot of it in this but i think it's it's brilliantly used it's got um fantastic kind of traditional keyboards elements to it as well yeah it's it's very atmospheric possibly the most normal song on the album sorry can we not discuss why it's track two i mean fuck you know because it's Hawkwind. Who goes for a soft, symphonic, instrumental track too? I mean, Mozart, perhaps? I don't know. But it's, um, oh, madness. They're mad. Mad. They're just weird shit but, doing weird shit. I, I get it. I get it. It's interesting you raise that because this didn't, in the context of Hawkwind, this didn't feel like yeah. a strange choice to me. Yeah, see, I'm with Mark. I'm not... Uh, when this came on as track two, I thought, okay, so they've gone there then. Yes. <laughs> and as a track, I think once it builds, it's great. Lovely orchestral piece. It takes a little while to get there, but I really, really like the second two minutes of it. <laughs> track three is Derider or D-Rider. Um, it's, again, it's completely different. begins with this kind of choppy choppy guitar thing going on and then you've got all these electronics that kind of sweep in and it's something almost Ennio Morricone about it all and then hello there's an oboe in this as well because fucking hell we need an oboe <laughs> just to make it uber weird and then uh, there's this kind of brilliant phasing going on fantastic drum fills Great song. It is a great, great song. It is a great... I'm getting more Floyd than Ennio Morricone, I must admit. This is good. This is It's so grandiose, isn't it? So sort of cosmic. Hypnotic as well. There's a sort of wandering midsection, which is very, very compelling. And as Richard says, you have to be, if you're lying on your back, it's the only way to do this. It's the only way to do this. Very 
proggy spacey, isn't it? And swirling and flanging. I couldn't think of a song to connect it to, but the vocals, whether it's the notes they're using, the 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 sound of the vocals and the phrasing, almost sounded a bit sort of Germanic. I, I well, don't know what it is. That's really interesting because they they are very closely linked to the German prog movement, particularly Amondul and bands like that. So the, the fact that it is slightly Germanic, because it's a bit craftworky in places as well. Yeah, just it's the phrasing of the words. Yeah. You know, it's quite it's almost quite mechanical. Yeah, so that's um, that's D Rider, um, which gives way to um, Web Weaver, which sees off side one. Uh, this is pro- for me. This is this is a step down. It feels to me like a bit of filler. It's almost like one of those you know, interstitial Pink Floyd moments where they're just. It's almost like trying to take the narrative on, although there is no narrative to to this album. It's not a concept album or anything. But it's like one of those things where they they're just kind of marking time. I'm I'm not a big fan of Web Weaver. I, I, I like it. I think it's a. It's a good finish to the side. Um, I think it's got an amazingly broad soundscape. It's one of those I just had to sit down and give it my full attention. So we got immersed in it. So I like it. I'm with Richard on this. I think it's fantastic. And also, I think, how can you how can you call it a filler, given we've had wind of change? Um, I, I think this is such a simple song, such a simple idea, um, you know, sort of piano and vocal harmonies, eventually merging into that sort of drum and guitar-led jam. But... It just takes me somewhere. I don't know. I think it's fantastic. Do you know what it reminds me of? It, it, it reminds me a bit of the Allman Brothers, Jessica, and maybe that's the issue I have with it because I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that either. Yeah, it, it's all right. It's, I, I'm not saying it's a bad song. It just doesn't really do it for me. And the next one, which opens side two, is You Better Believe It, which was recorded live at Edmonton Sundown. Uh, in January of 74. I, I quite like this song. I think it, it makes me laugh because it's got Lemmy's kind of backing vocal on it, which is just... I don't, did you think it just sounds a bit odd? It just sort of pops up, does it, and then yeah. disappears again? <laughs> just, or is it just me? Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's weird. But he's, oh, oh, <laughs> Lemmy, it's Lemmy. Yeah. <laughs> Instantly recognisable. <laughs> this was quite a grower for me. I mean, it, it's got echoes of Silver Machine, I think, and things like that on it. And I felt this was almost sort of, you know, pre-New Wave. I mean, I, the, the song I heard most on this when it really got going was Something Better Changed yeah, okay. by The Stranglers. Yeah. That's interesting. That's not going to be the first, that's not going to be the last time that we mention The Stranglers tonight. I, I really, I, I like this. I, I, it's it's just It's just that... That Lemmy moment just makes me laugh every time. I'm sure it's not supposed to make me laugh. So, yeah, it's it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's more than fine. Um, it's the best song on the album. It is. It's no, just it's fantastic. It's Listen to this late at night, and we're doing this now in the dark, or in my case, asleep in a hammock. Same difference. <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful builder. I'm getting a bit of almost joy division in some of those um, guitar lines. Yeah. Full of yeah. Full of space energy. It's just a jam, isn't it, surely? There's a violin adding an, an almost folk element um, or, an, or sort of Eastern element, perhaps. Yet more layers. It is incredible. Brilliantly, brilliantly done. And what a finish. What a finish. I just, I'm just so captivated by this song. I really am. 
I find it so entrancing. I have one problem. I have one thing, one observation. Apparently, it was recorded live. Were they so tripped out that they were asleep? Well, yeah. Was it recorded live? Um, Paradox at the end of the album was also recorded live. I can't, I can't distinguish or determine any live element. I love in either of those songs. Just adore this. It's just so got in my head. They they do like their mid Middle Eastern mm. influences, don't they? There's there's quite a lot of that in mm. in this album. Um, the next one is the title track, which is almost gothic in its sort of scale. It's like a film score. I love it. I think it's really really clever, and it's there's huge amounts of atmosphere to it, and it, there's a sense of dread about it. It's it's largely driven by piano. It's a very short track, only two and a half minutes. But in all of that, it goes a little bit Jean-Michel Jarre in places as well. You, you could imagine this in a movie about, you know, somebody walking through a dark, deserted, potentially haunted house or something. I, I think this is great. I don't. It's a breather of no great substance. It's, it's, it's marking time, especially coming after You Better Believe It, which has got so much energy and mania about it. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it is a soft drink after a heavy session. Yeah. <laughs> so where are you, Richard? Gothic grandeur or filler? Certainly not filler, but I did put down pleasant mm. interlude. I, mean, I don't no. think anything's yeah. out of place on this album. Synthesised strings and piano. Um, I never forwarded it on. Just enjoyed listening to it and then got on to Lost Johnny. Well, let's talk about that, because Lost Johnny is a, a Lemmy contribution to the album. How we know that, I can't <laughs> even begin to imagine. Um, and it's no great surprise that Motorhead then went on to re-record it. Actually, not as well, I would venture, as this. Um, as a kind of a, an intro to Motorhead, I quite like this. I'm not sure it's a Hawkwind song. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's just... It is. I mean, this is where Motet started, wasn't it? It must be. <laughs> just <laughs> Lemmy's vocals. Um, the, it's got this hypnotic bass line. It's got a good groove. Yeah, it just makes me smile. That's, but it does It does achieve the impossible of sounding more yes. Motorhead than yeah. Motorhead did. Yeah, extraordinary. The bloke who co-wrote it was also, was also yeah. a collaborator on a lot of um, Motet songs as well, wasn't he? Mick Farrer. Apparently so. I, I I read something about that. I didn't know that until this week. I have to say, um, yeah. I just I'm just not sure it's a Hawkwind song. I think it's a Motorhead song that's masquerading as a Hawkwind song. Nothing wrong with it, but it, yeah, it it is what it is, isn't it? Um, anyway, um, penultimate track on the album um, is a one minute thirty seven piece of indulgence called Goat Willow, um, which I'm not even sure. We will mark it because it's over a minute and it's very obviously a piece of music. It's it's a bit of nothing shoveled in somewhere. I can't I don't actually understand why it's there. There's nothing particularly wrong with it, but it doesn't seem to serve any purpose. It just seems to be one long note on a mellotron mm. with a bit of piano around it. I think they just needed an instrumental, didn't they? Because they'd only had two so far. So <laughs> But that does bring us on to um to, never mind what Steve says. One of the um best songs on the album is paradox but you will hear the riff from wind of change recycled very definitely in this track um 
I love this. I, I, I put it in the same class as Psychedelic Warlords. Uh, it's one of the three tracks on the album, with You Better Believe It being the other one that I've had a big love in with this week. I just think it's hypnotic. It's trancey. You know, this is, this is kind of... Um, the, the way I would describe this track is this is the 1974 equivalent of Massive Attack in the <laughs> in the early 90s, um, but with heaviness. I love this song. I, I just adore it. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, at, at, I mean, at times it's proper heavy, proper yeah. proper heavy. I mean, it kind of swings, you know, between that and being a folk song. <laughs> it's... It's constantly surprising, apart from the bit that you've heard yeah, in Winds of Change. I was going to say, it's, it's just a mashup of after previous songs on here, isn't it? It's not, um, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I've, I've heard enough. So, highs and lows. Okay, for me, uh, my low would be, ooh, Wind of Change, I guess. If we're scoring Hall of the Mountain Grill, then that would be down there too. Um and uh, for me, the high is is the opener, psychedelic warlords. Yeah, the, certainly the, the instrumentals are, are certainly weaknesses. Hall of the Mountain Grill, probably mine. And as I say, you'd better believe it is still whirring around my head. It's locked in. Okay, well, uh, psychedelic warlords is my high, and there are a couple of that I could have chosen as as the low. The one that will probably get the lowest score is Web Weaver, which I know will disappoint you, Steve, but there you go. That is what makes the world go round. That was Hawkwind 1974, Hall of the Mountain Grill. Um, they released about 486 albums between 1970 and 1995, so we will be revisiting them uh, at some point in the future, but it's time to move on by 21 years to 1995 and apparently another space rock band monster magnet richard <laughs> opening album sleeve notes yeah so the first appearance on the podcast for monster magnet formed in 1989 uh, in red bank in new jersey uh, led uh, as always by dave windorf um, and they were named after a 1960s toy apparently and yeah well we'll discuss are they the modern day successors to uh, hawkwind in terms of this whole space rock or are they just another stoner grunge band? So this is, yeah, Dopes to Infinity, and it's their third studio album. Their first album, Spine of God, was uh, released in 1991, uh, followed by Super Judge in 93. Are they stoner rock? Well, yeah, I've, given their early demos were called things like I'm High on Dope and I'm Stoned, What You Gonna Do About It? Uh, probably. Um but th- th- this album was released on March the 21st in 1995. Uh, it was released on the A&M uh, label, their second album uh, with A&M. And uh, it was recorded at the Magic Shop and the Electric Lady Studios in New York. Dave Windorf uh, produced it as well as writing pretty much everything on it. And uh, he had a bit of a mission uh, with this album. Uh, he was a bit disappointed with the, the production on Supercharge. He felt it was sort of too tinny mid-range and wanted something that was a lot sort of fuller and bigger. It reached uh, 51 in the UK, didn't do that much in the US. And it, I think it was disappointing in terms of sales that it didn't really outstrip much uh, what they'd achieved with, with Superjudge. 
Personnel-wise, I'd say Dave Windorf playing loads of stuff, vocals, bass, guitar, various percussion, theremins, organs, bells, mellotron, you name it. And he was joined by Ed Mundell on bass, Joe Calandra on guitar and bass, and John Kleiman on various percussion and drums and stuff. They all shared backing vocal duties. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll get on to discuss this because I mean, the album is a... Well, for some, yeah, tortuous uh, 62 minutes and 21 seconds in length, and uh, that's just the CD. If you uh, bought the double vinyl, you can add another 10 minutes at least onto that. And I, I do think that this is another example. We've had a few in the past on the podcast. Yeah, given that Windorf was so driven and demanding and um, wanting to push the envelope, and given that he essentially had what appears to be complete control over this, I don't think he quite knew where to stop. Uh, Track-wise, there are 12 or 13, uh, depending on which uh, uh, version of the album you bought. And they are as follows. Dopes to Infinity, the the title track. Negasonic Teenage Warhead, Look to Your Orb for the Morning. All Friends and Kingdom Come. Ego, The Living Planet, Blow Em Off. Third Alternative, I Control, I Fly, King of Mars, Dead Christmas, the theme from Master Burner and Vertigo, and then a hidden track or a not-so-hidden track of Forbidden Planet, um, which we still probably haven't decided whether we'll mark this or not, but I think actually we should talk about it and probably mark it, given that it takes up a lot on the vinyl. Um, yeah, so 
I, I do like Monster Magnet. I really do. Um, I, I think um, given that you know grunge had this grip, there was a bit of a freshness to some of the stuff they were doing, a bit of energy in the in the early 90s. Um, and personally, I absolutely love the album that followed uh, this, which was which was Power Trip. In terms of Dope to Infinity, oh, there's some ups and downs. I think there's some really, really good stuff on here. I think there's some stuff that is not good at all. And there is filler. And uh, there's a number of songs that are far too long. But much like we talked about with Hawkwind, um, on a lot of these songs, there is a fantastic soundscape. Uh, there's co- it's complex, it's layered, and it it does a lot. A number of these songs do envelop you. Um, if there's a, I think theme for this uh, episode at least, it, it, it. I mean, it's judged by some to be their masterpiece. Um, I don't think I. Ne- I don't think I agree. No, I don't agree. Um, I think they're a, they've done better stuff. Uh, but it's been an interesting listen. It's been challenging for me. I think it's been very challenging for you <laughs> at times, guys. Um, yeah, how have you got on? Go on, Steve. Are you going to be witness for the defence or witness for the prosecution? I'm, I'm definitely with the defence here, mate. I'm afraid you 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 need to go last. You are the, you are the voice of reason because I adore this album. <laughs> Absolutely fucking adore this album. My first my first taste of Monster Magnet was when, and you may well remember, Richard. You came to a sad night and you stuck on Temple of Your Dreams from Power Trip. Their fourth album, I was blown away. I think we all were. And I, I went out, it's such a cool, heavy song. I went out and bought the album within days of, of leaving whichever house we were at that night. Um, bought the album, still love it now. Went out on the back of that and went out and bought God Says No, which is the next album. Exactly the same feeling. Just adored it. Absolutely adored it. Especially those two epic tracks, Queen of You and Cry hammock regulars and it's because of that epicness that monster magnet do that not only do i love this album um but it could be twice as long and i would still love it i mean genuinely (laughs) genuinely because it's it's just made to be immersed in i did make the mistake having bought um power trip and god says no i then went back and bought spine of god which has got a very different feel to it and so i did wonder where this would fall I mean, not just chronologically, but I meant stylistically, you know, where Windorf's flag would be flying at this stage. And it, and it, and it is, because Spine of God was an acquired taste, and I've not acquired that taste yet. But this is definitely more power trip than, than Spine mm. of God, um, far more accessible. So, so anyway, when you pumped with this, I only knew the one track off this, which was um, the hit. Was it a hit? I don't know, Negasonic Teenage yeah. Warhead, which I, I don't know how big it was, but I knew it, loved it. And I just wish I'd picked this up years ago. I think it's absolutely dazzling. There is a track on here that will bring it down, and and it's going to be a massive talking point at the end. And that's a criminal shame because this is such a comforting piece of work. It's just enveloped me. I love it. (laughs) It would be very easy for me at this point just to be contrary for the sake of being contrary. The truth of the matter is I also went out and bought Power Trip when you played it to me, Richard, back in, would have been, what, 96, I suppose, something like that. And it was all right. You know, I played it quite a few times, actually, um, but then lost interest in it. And I, I lost interest in a lot of 90s stuff. Um, I was expecting not to like this at all. As a suite of 12 songs, I don't like it. I wouldn't listen to it in its entirety 
ever again because it's just not for me. But as I said to you both um, earlier today when we were sort of talking about the show, I think it's really interesting that when you, when I listen to the songs on their own individually, forensically, and judge them on their own merits, there are a lot of songs on here that I do actually quite like. Um, I just don't think they fit together for, for my ears as an album, as a coherent album, and therefore I will never put it on again. It is space rock. There's no doubt about it, and it absolutely is, I'm sure, informed and influenced by Hawkwind. But I, I, I do think it's also got a bit of a grunge and stone address on, um, and you know, it, it kind of flounces out and comes back wearing a, a moustache and a and a pair of glasses and pretends to be something else. But actually, there's a lot of, I can hear a lot of DNA of of Alice in Chains and Soundgarden in here, um, and some and some Tool and and fucking Caius um, as well. And it, it just isn't for me. You know, I, I understand why you like it, Steve. I'll never listen to it again. Okay, so the album opens uh, with the, the title track, Dopes to Infinity. We kind of get a bit of a, a short swirling, it almost could be a Hawkwind song, the first uh, 20 seconds or so, but uh, it doesn't last for long because then we get into an absolute monster riff. Typical Monster Magnet, Steve says, I think this did this did to point the way as a number of songs I think we'll reference as we go through this uh that you could sort of see indicates where they would go with Power Trip and God Says No subsequent to this. I think it's a really good start, really good start. Um, I like the builds throughout um, the last couple of minutes. It's a good signpost for this album. There are better songs on it, personally for me, uh, but it's a good start. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there are better songs on here. I, I like this, but I think in terms of arranging and phrasing, I think King of Mars, for example, is much, much better than this. Um, I think this is a good song. I do think it's a good song. I think it's a perfectly solid opener. But by the end of it, I'm kind of looking forward to track two. I love mm-hmm. the riff. There's a monotony about Monster, whatever, what Monster Magnet do, and that's part of the charm. But there's a monotony about this I don't quite enjoy. I, I think monotonous is a good word. Um, no, I, I find this just slightly tedious. No, I, yeah, I, I can understand that. So let's move on to, to track two, which... Uh, Steve mentioned earlier was the um, the, the single, the first single, um, which is a Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Uh, appeared on the soundtrack to a film called SFW, So Fucking What? And apparently it came from Dave Windhoff being asked to write a song for the masses and something a bit more commercial. Uh, it, 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 he's quoted as saying that at the time Nirvana's song sounded like Boston to him. <laughs> so he took a riff and uh, wrote this one in half an hour. Well, I think, what a half an hour? Because <laughs> um, this is full of energy, uh, big sound, heavy riffs. I mean, I, I can hear Space Lord in this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, this, is, this, this for me is, is proper, proper monster magnet, full of swirls and attitude and playing with your head and crazy lyrics and punch-in-the-face riffs. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's exactly what I put. I put proper Monster Magnet, that trademark sort of fuzzy distortion intro into the, an absolute banger, absolute banger. Yeah, I love the fact that this was his solution to 
record company execs saying they wanted something commercially accessible. It's just fun. Have you seen the video? You must have seen the video, Richard. I've not, no, I've not. I mean, it's supposed to be proper trippy, isn't it? Isn't it's it? utterly bonkers. It's just brilliantly <laughs> bonkers. Windor said he wanted something sort of fittingly left field. And he also said he was surprised by quite how off the wall it turned out. You must see it. It is absolutely fucking mad. This song is just a genius. Side swipe at whiny grunge musicians. He had no truck. He had no time with grunge, did he? He liked the idea of the concept originally, hmm. but he just thought they were. He just was absolutely fed up with it very quickly. Wouldn't be pigeonholed. That's why I like Windor. You look at his top ten albums. Louder sound, I think, did his top ten albums. It gives you a real insight. Paranoid, um, the Cult, the Stooges, Zeppelin, Hendrix, all on there. That's where this man was. I hear so much of all of that in it. Brilliant. I hear quite a lot of the almighty in this, which means I like it quite a lot. Mm. Mm. But I think it loses a hell of a lot of momentum in the verses. I think it jumps into life in the chorus, but it just kind of dies off a bit in the in the verses. But yeah, yeah, I quite like the sentiment of it. It's the only song where I actually understand what he's talking about. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, you can explain it to me. Okay, uh, well, let's move on to, to track three. And uh, this was the second single off of uh, this album. Didn't do so well as the first. And uh, it's called Look to Your Orb for the Warning. Um, I love this. I absolutely love this. It's got a, another a fantastic riff, a really good groove. Again, that spaced out chorus where you're sort of floating around again. And then it hit and back into that. I mean, I. I put hypnotic on this one, and we talked a lot about hypnotic at uh, uh, with Hawkwind, and that's what this is. Th- this riff could just go on forever for me. And thank heavens for the extended outro as well. It's worth every second of the six minutes thirty. This, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like you, Richard. It could run and run and run. <laughs> it really could, and I'd imagine it lasts a lot longer. Live, they play. It's one of their most played songs live, isn't it? And I bet I've not seen them live. I've, I've, I'd have loved to. I'd have loved to. I don't know why you're complaining. It goes on forever. <laughs> <laughs> so not, uh, not not to infinity, but ad infinitum. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also wrote down hypnotic. It is, it's got a hypnotic quality, some nice time changes, really nice lead guitar work in the solo, but I find it a bit ploddy and it could do with two minutes shaved off it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say I'd say that about other tracks on this album, but uh, but not this one. Uh, I think it's an absolute corker. Right, um, let's move on to four. Track four is All Friends and Kingdom Come. Um, this is again, it's, it's sort of mid-paced, very psychedelic. I feel the, the mood of of this song. I, I quite layered. I could imagine Hawkwind doing this song. Yeah, I, I like it. I like how it swirls around. It immerses you. There's a real attitude in the way that Windorf sings some of these songs and the stories that he tells with them, don't you think? I agree. This is my kind of cry moment or Queen of You moment. It's just because the song breathes. The song breathes. This this is the monster magnet I adore. I absolutely adore. Um, it's you know you've got that groovy bass line driving it all along. It's so mellow. It's so maudling, but also so catchy. You know, pull off that trick. And as I say, these tracks are allowed to breathe. And I, and I know this album, 62 minutes, it's not too long because it's it's supposed to be spaced out. We're supposed to be spaced out listening to it. You know, slow it up. 
uh, allow it to just drift. Because um, when they hit a tune like this, you know, you're absolutely thrilled to bits that they haven't cut it to four minutes. It needs to be allowed to run. This goes where this song naturally goes. And I can say that about four or five tracks on this album. They're not prolonged for any other reason than that's where they naturally go. And I think that's clever. I love this. It's my track of the album. Uh, it's one of two tracks of the album for me. Um, I really like this as well. I think it's got its nice kind of space rocky and I absolutely get the Hawkwind thing about you could hear them do it in a slightly more chaotic and less organized <laughs> way but you could hear Hawkwind doing this um it's got it's all it's trancey all that reverb going on just really adds to it so yeah I'm I'm quite happy to listen to this okay well we uh, better crack on because we've got a lot of tracks to get through uh and move on to track five which is Named after a Marvel character, the track's called Ego, the Living Planet. Uh, again, a very, well, is it monotonous? Is it hypnotic? Certainly a very repetitive riff, virtually a, uh, an instrumental. But it, after a short swirling intro, it breaks into what I can only describe as a Ramstein riff. It's Kashmir. It's more Ramstein than Kashmir, surely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's got some Ramstein element, but ultimately the structure of the song is, is Kashmir. It's just brilliant. It's just interminable, an absolute brain fry. How do you get away with this? It's just genius. It just rolls and it rocks and it rocks and it rolls and it rocks and it rolls and it rolls and it rocks and it just fucking eats into your soul. It's beautiful. It's just so heavily hypnotic. From now on, I'm just going to raise my hand when I've got something to say, but I'm just going to let the two of you talk because you're <laughs> both completely <laughs> off with the fairies. <laughs> I'm going on mute. <laughs> okay, well, we'll move on then to track six and uh, blow them off. This is acoustic number. Um, you know, I mean, it's stuff that sounds like cellos. I'm presuming that's that's where the I mean, a lot of Mellotron used on this album. Windoff uh, avoided uh, any synthesizers, any digital, any digitally produced music. So he was, you know, that they used Mellotron's organs. Uh, there's even a theremin at uh, at some point uh, on this album. I I haven't quite spotted where. So yeah, blowing off. Um, so lighter, acoustic driven. This, I mean, it's a nice drop in terms of the album mood, I guess. I'm mixed on this one, if I'm honest. Sometimes I listen to it and think it's all right, but others, it doesn't, I'm not that bothered by it. There is a side of Windorf we saw from time to time, though, isn't it? He does do these curious little gems, doesn't he, I think? Him talking utter bollocks, or it sounds like, the, the beauty of it is he's articulating it, so you can hear what, what the fuck he's going on about. And it's a kind of, it's, it is a very hooky tune. I don't know what it's about. Um, chorus is brilliant. It's just a cool, trippy number. I, I, I like it. I just think it's a nice, cool little break. Mark. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's see what Mark's got to say about uh, track seven, which is third alternative. Um, so again, we get this sort of quiet, I mean, like a slightly disturbing start, and then it grows, it breaks into 
a very slow, very heavy riff. I mean, I suppose it's a bit bluesy. You get that classic sort of monster magnet, quiet, loud, quiet, loud. This is, for me, the first track where I get tired. I mean, four minutes will be enough of this riff for me, let alone eight minutes. Okay. Just in case you think I'm gushing, this is the last time I'll use this word, but this is a masterpiece. I promise you, I promise you. I love this. This is this is eight seriously intense minutes. And, um, yeah, I read something on a forum in which there were an awful lot of very well-meaning Monster Magnet fans trying to sort of trying to relate what this song is about. And any number of little topics came up, relationships, um, paedophilia, sex, UFOs, conspiracy theories. And by the end, pretty much everyone on this forum had agreed, yeah, it's about drugs, isn't it? He's just completely fucked up and it's about drugs. This is just so thunderous, so intense, clever key changes, clever use of backing vocals, massively freaky Ed Mundell solo, um, and the repetition, and I, I, I love the repetition. It just powers on and on and on and on, and, and eight minutes is fine for me. I, as I say, masterpiece. It's the last time I'll use that word. I think it's great you like it. <laughs> it's eight minutes and 33 seconds. However... I think in the interests of fairness, it's only right that I should keep my opinions about this particular track to myself <laughs> because because I I hate it. I, I, I absolutely loathe okay. this track. Yeah, go, go. So come on. No, this is good. This is good. Come on. It's just the, the, the distortion on the vocal is just, I can't get on with that at all. It's repetitive to the point of being painful. And it's... And it's, I'll say it again, it's eight minutes and 33 seconds. Fuck off. I don't need eight minutes, 33 seconds of this. I need about one minute and 15. <laughs> yeah, this, this, is, this is one of only two tracks on the album that I actually, actually loathe. I, 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 would, wow. I will never, ever listen to it again. Absolutely let it take me. But, but Steve, you, hear, you are hearing stuff in this that I mm. just, mm. the whole thing, not just this track, mm. the whole album. I don't mm. hear it. I, mm. I, I think I'm a very simple man, and I, I have very simple needs. And this is overcomplicated. The album is overcomplicated mm. for me. I don't want it's, to. It's for me. This track is exactly the same as Tool. I don't want to have to work this hard mm. to enjoy something. It, it has taken every ounce of my will and strength not to move this on. Every time I've listened to wow. it. Wow. What's great about what we do on this podcast is it shows that it, it yeah, there are going to be a number of albums that aren't for everybody because it depends yeah. where, where you're coming from. I find it really interesting, though, that on almost every song, Steve and I have been at polar ends. Mm-hmm. And yet we agree on so much. So what happens to your ears? Mm. Let's see where we go with the next one then. Uh, so track eight is I Control, I Fly. So the tempo picks up again on this one. More distorted vocals. Uh, he, he does use them a lot. Um, much faster riff. We're, we're back into, in my view, classic Monster Magnet. I can hear similarities to stuff like Power Trip in this song. Uh, it, it's catchier. Not the best track on the album, but for me, a lift up after the last one. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, no. But um, <laughs> this is a... This is a come down. I can hear Wayne Kramer playing this. I can see MC5 doing this live. It's just got that real pace to it. It's very good. 
can I just squeeze the back of my head now, babe, say the words just right, slide the praise of the pneumatic monkey like your mom last night. You're in a gada da vida, honey. Take a bit of the cow. We can piss on a fake revolution. God is telling me how. And that's one of the sane lyrics on this album. I mean, what? I mean, just what? <laughs> so, Steve, you, you said to me at the start of this, you said it's got a lot of wit. Mm. If we don't understand what he's singing about, how do we know that? It feels witty. <laughs> Genius. All right, King of Mars. Yeah, so uh, we slow down again, um, sort of more mid-paced uh, track. I was getting a Middle Eastern vibe to this. You mentioned it earlier with uh, with Hawkwind um, and certainly the guitar on this. Again, very layered, but I do find this a bit mushy. And for me, by this point in the album, uh, I'm getting towards Mark's state of mind. With an album of this length, I started to realise that there is only so much Monster Magnet even I can listen to <laughs> in one go. I'm really very bored now. I'm done with the... I've, I'm, I'm full up of Monster Magnet now. This was you, if you were hearing this first, I've always thought this should open the album. It's a kind of proper kind of space around them, I think. Yeah. I quite like it. It's not great, mm. but it's, it's, I think it's better than the title track. This is that the point I was making earlier. I think it's... It kind of feels like an anthem. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, track 10, which is uh, Dead Christmas. And this is another style of music that Monster Magnet do so well. Um, that sort of, I don't know, that 60s transatlantic melodic rock, you know, sort of thing of animals. I always feel that these kinds of Monster Magnet songs must have appeared in a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know <laughs> what I mean, in terms yeah. of the mood. And yeah, yeah, sort of light guitar driven. There's, I think there's some wit in these lyrics. I got, I got my face in the furnace. I got my snake in a sleeve. God's drowned in a bowl of cereal. I have to ask you to leave. I mean, yeah, there's wit in there. I still don't get it, but Richard, you spot on. This is just one of those. It's a trippy Tarantino moment. It's just such a great kind of sixties psychedelic feel to it. My joint top track of the album. Mm. Getting massive amounts of golden brown. Yeah, it's groovy, it's hypnotic. It's Yeah, I really like this. Oh, very good. Okay, well, let's move on to track 11. We're nearly there, Mark. Just a, uh, just a few more, just a few more. Please hold on. The track 11 is the theme from Master Burner. An instrumental, it's quiet for a couple of minutes, then it really takes off. Again, very repetitive, I mean, uh, like a theme tune. I mean, I, the, the, the note I've made here is uh, the, the Thunderbirds theme on acid. <laughs> Orion is very repetitive, and this is not Orion. All right, so we'll now move to, well, for some, the final track of the album. Um, if you've got the vinyl, it's uh, there's a couple of tracks uh, on the CD. They're joined by or, or separated by a couple of minutes of silence and one of those hidden surprise tracks at the end. With the album, you've got the joys of uh, a full 16 minutes or so of, of Forbidden Planet. But let's talk about Vertigo. I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really heavy, trippy finale, isn't it? I mean, it's, I mean again, it's very hypnotic melody and rhythm to it. Vocals fading in and out, lots of feedback. 
you know, I can understand why they finished with it. Just to leave you with, you know, we're monster magnets, see you next time kind of thing. What I was going to say, <clears throat> had we just been reviewing Vertigo in its simplest, purest form, I said, and I quote, absolutely stonking, hypnotically quirky powerhouse of a finish. It's like a five-minute, 41-second outro, astonishingly good. And I was happy to leave it there and give it the nine out of ten I was going to give it. <laughs> but then came the news, dot, dot, dot. There seem to be a few possible variations on this song. And what are we going to do? Well, Mark, first, your views on Vertigo? I, I don't like it. I, I didn't like it before I got the bad news about the rest of it. Um, <laughs> the hidden track is not going to make a huge amount of difference to my score for the album. I, I, I don't get on particularly well with stuff like this. It's just I can't make out, you know, I can't hear anything. All I hear is uh, that whispering. You know, you get to 56 like I am, and it's hard enough to hear stuff as it is. Never mind having to, <laughs> never mind having to go to Genius to find out what he's on about. <laughs> no, I don't like this track. Yeah, our dilemma, listeners, is, is the fact that Forbidden Planet, um, which is in an edited form on the CD and a full form on the album, is essentially an attempt with various guitar and synth noises and a ton of feedback, I think, at, you know, an approximation, a bad approximation of the theme music to the film Forbidden Planet. And uh, it it makes absolutely no sense to me. I don't think any sense to any of us. So I think, uh, given that it, it's there, it, it's a piece of music, we should score it. They, them's the rules. And um, and we'll we'll see what it does to the scores. I felt cheated by it, if I'm honest. It, it, yeah, it, I know. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I felt too, like but... it was um, some of the some of the sound effects. It, it was almost like Bella Lugosi's "Dead" by Bauhaus, but 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 nowhere near as 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 decent as that. It was just a, a wall of nothing very interesting. And I felt che- I did feel slightly deflated um, and cross. I felt cross with them for being so unnecessarily smart-ass. Because it's not big, it's not big, it's not clever, it's not even edgy, it's just shit. Okay, Uh, what are your highs and lows? I'm never that fussed about a theme from Master Burner. I don't dislike it, it's just just not bothered about it. Um, There's several nine pluses, and um, All Friends and Kingdom Come is, um, is the crown prince of this album for me. Yeah, my my highs. Well, the, the easy part is the highs. Um, I've scored them identically. Uh, All friends uh, and kingdom come, and dead Christmas. And I suppose if I had to choose one of those two, it would be All Friends. And my low, well, that I'm sorry to say is third alternative. Okay. Well, actually, I'm on the low. I'm with you, Mark, on on third alternative. And for me, the high is look to your orb for the warning so there we go um there's the third of our university spacey albums of uh, of this episode episode number 57 of the podcast we'd now better get on to the scoring and see how they all tot up track by track reviews complete initializing rating process Right, so there you go. We've reviewed three albums for episode 57. Let's find out the scores for these three. And as you know, we score these albums track by track, which is worth pointing out on 
this episode of all episodes, which is why you get the numbers we do. Um, and it seems a long time ago that we were in the relative sane comfort of Deep Purple and Fireball, and we scored that accordingly. Um, I gave it 7.2. Richard gave it 7.28. Um, Mark gave it a little bit higher than the two of us, 7.85. For an overall album score of 7.45238. Mark Hawkwind. Uh, so this did um, better than I actually thought it was going to. And it turns out, Steve and Richard, you loved it exactly the same because you gave it 7.22222. And me being me and picking this one, I gave it a 7.7. 7. Um, so I liked it more than the two of you and I gave it an overall album score of 7.38. Richard, the, I mean, this is this is what we've all been waiting for. How did Monster <laughs> Magnet get on? Well, yeah... Not so well, not so well. I mean, it was my decision. We needed to score Forbidden Planet. I think it's right. It's what we do. But that significantly affected the scores, um, including it. They did really well, um, still in Steve's eyes, and uh, they got a 7.61. Mark, you gave it a 6.49, and I gave it a 6.84. And that uh, led to an overall score of 6.98, so not quite reaching 7. What's interesting is if we had excluded that final, whatever you'd call a track, uh, they'd have actually got overall a 7.25. So, yeah, that's how Monster Magnet did. Okay, well, we'd better now see how those scores slot these three albums into the Hall of Fame. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so here we are. Uh, in the Hall of Fame, three albums this episode, uh, Hawkwind, Deep Purple and Monster Magnet, not in that order. Um, and given the scores that they've got, we're not going to be climbing too far up the Hall of Fame to find them. In fact, um, we don't have to go very far at all to find Dopes to Infinity, uh, that final track really did do for them they come in at 139 on the list between firehouse and fear factory you said richard that if they we hadn't scored that last track they got 7.2 something um it wouldn't have pushed them all that far up but it would push them up to sort of like the uh, 110s something like that so it it really does you know small marks matter in this list because the the margins are gossamer thin now um so yeah dopes to infinity 139 um hanging just inside the hundred uh, sorry no just outside uh, the top 100 uh, 101 hall of the mountain grill uh from hawkwind comes in at 101 and fireball is not all that far above them six places above them at 95 Fireball in the top 100, not for very long, I would suggest. Um, probably no great surprise in there, boys. No, and um, Deep Purple confirming what Deep Purple said. We've done two Deep Purple albums. One of them stands at number four in our list, and one of them stands at 95. And uh, the one at number four is not Fireball. Yeah, this is this is why this is the list that matters. Um, this isn't just um, choosing an album because you like a few tracks. That's not what the, this Hall of Fame is about. So I think it's it's right. I mean, even though I brought Monster Magnet to the table, never well, mind. Yeah, and we had a very similar conversation at the end of Tool, didn't we, uh, in episode 10. Ho-hum. 
Um, there you are. That is the end of episode 57. We'll be back next time with another three albums. Um, hopefully slightly saner than two than two of the three that we've done this evening. Um, but that is it. Thank you for your company. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did in our perverse kind of way. And we'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 